Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 144. Today in the show, we are talking about our latest shed hunting exploits, discussing our 2017 hunting trips, and sharing recommendations and thoughts on planning DIY hunting trips. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we're going to be talking about our 2017 hunting plans, just me and Dan. And as we talk about some of this stuff, I want to talk more in general too about you know how we plan our hunting seasons, how we plan specific trips, um, some different advice and recommendations and lessons learned on how we've done that in the past, what we're planning on doing in the future, you know, how we decide where to go, what gear to bring, how to learn about these different places or different species or stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of the game plan for today, Dan. But before we get into that stuff, uh, we do have a couple interesting updates from more recently, don't we? Yeah, my my uh, wife made a delicious crisp today. <laughs> a crisp, like an apple crisp. crisp? Yeah, but it wasn't apple. It was like raspberry, some kind of mixed berry jam thing. And it, uh, I, I'm going to tell you right now, it's delicious. I'm a big fan of crisps. Yeah, I, me too. I, I like uh, a good a good berry crisp or a peach cobbler. Does a peach cobbler uh, count as a crisp? Yeah, it can. Is the top crispy? I would say typically. Well, then I, I feel it should fall in the crisp category. Okay, good. And then apple crisp, obviously. Obviously, that's um, no brainer. Yeah, so good. We're on the same page. I'm hungry though now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I had a small little bowl of it with uh, a nice cold glass of milk and and here I am on a sugar high ready to uh tackle today's podcast. That's good. I'm on a I'm on an uh endorphin high. I just did uh, okay. my workout for the day, so I'm a little sweaty but ready to talk about big hunting trips. So that's good. Wait a second. You did a workout? I how did. do we how do we even know if you did a workout? You didn't post any selfies. <laughs> yeah. I know. Sorry. I need to I need to get my my selfie <laughs> game on point here. Right. You need to start. Hey, look how many pushups I did today. You know, when we were just talking about this before we started recording, I'm, I'm just not the type. Nothing against people who want to post their workout pictures or selfies or whatever, but that's just not my thing. And probably that's because like three pushups isn't very impressive. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to get me too much. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's comedy. Yeah. The uh, old, you know, if a tree f- falls in the wood or woods doesn't make a sound or whatever that is right right so if no if no selfie is posted did a workout actually happen we'll never know you never know we'll never know you never know so so yeah i did uh i did a little prep because i'm taking off here in a few weeks dude a few weeks and i'm heading out west and you're going to be doing a shed hunt bunch of shed hunting fishing camping hiking and hunting. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk more about that here in a second. That's right. Because uh, I'm pretty pumped about that. But uh, but you. Yes. You and your wife. I don't know if this is what you want to talk about or not, but I want to talk about it. You and your wife cleaned up this past weekend. Yeah, we, uh, we had a very good, fun time. And um, you, need, you need something like that. 
uh, when you're trying to get somebody into the woods because the first couple times I've taken her shed hunting, it hasn't resulted in any type of sheds to be found. And uh, like you mentioned, man, we went out oh, uh, Saturday, found nine sheds between the two of us in uh, about seven hours. And, wow. uh, and it was just awesome because she found uh, – she found three, I found six, but we found of those three that she found, she found a big one, uh, a really, a really good sized one. And then another little one, um, which were matching sets to the ones that I also found. So it's kind of a cool, I don't know, to me, it's just kind of a cool connection saying that, you know, my wife found one side and I found the other side to this matching set. So, oh, that's sweet, Dan. <laughs> yep. So, so I'm going to, you know, take a red marker and draw hearts all over that shed and it's going to be like one of those BFF necklaces. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I like that. This is going to be yeah. an issue though. Cause just last weekend you were talking about how special it was that your wife found her first shed and you were like, put it up on a plaque or something. Oh, and yeah. then like six days later now, you know, she's just racking them up. Are you going to have to put all of these now up there in a special place? Yeah. Yeah. I, I did a lot of thinking. So I, I just slid found some room and they're going in with the rest of them. There you go. They look like some good sheds though. Some like pretty good sized ones. Yeah. Um, two things that I'm really impressed with, uh, the, the biggest one I'm picking it up right now, tons of mass, a good four point side, but the base is small, which tells me it's probably a young deer. So it could be a going to be a three-year-old or going to be a four-year-old and i'm basing that on the i'm basing that on the pedicle alone right mm-hmm. so so but she did find the first big antler to a big matching set that we found and it is it's a stud mass throughout the entire thing big bases um you know it probably wouldn't score much but uh, it was a, a really good find for her, and that is what got her excited to f- go and finish out the rest of the day. Yeah, but so is, do you guys have some future shed hunts on the books now, or is this it? Uh, I don't know if we're going to be going this year anymore. I mean, we just got six inches of snow last night. Yeah. So or two nights ago. So it's kind of uh, I don't know. Plus, I found one that was really chewed up. I still think there's probably some antlers out there somewhere. We just, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be doing anything with the wife this upcoming weekend for the quote unquote shed rally. Yeah. I feel, feels a little late. Yeah. I know. Um, I know there's still a lot of people talking like deer holding antlers though. Like people are still seeing a lot of bucks holding. So, and it did seem like, um, just based on some, you know, my buddies there in Iowa that, that we shed hunted with last weekend, um, or, you know, the previous weekend, you know, we didn't find a whole lot that weekend when you were with us and I was out there, but then this, these past couple of days, they are cleaning up. They found a bunch. Right. So it seems like there's yep. a lot of fresh antlers just dropping and, um, and yeah, so I, uh, shoot, you know, there's something on the tip of my tongue. Oh, I know I was going to ask you these sheds you found. Did you find yep. any from deer that you know? Yeah, I... The other, for the most part, the smaller ones, you know, they're kind of hard to tell, but going back and looking at this, the one I was talking about having the smaller base that if, if it is in fact, this, uh, buck that I'm thinking about, it is a buck 
that I feel is a descendant of another buck that I called Megatron. And I think I got a, yeah, I got a couple pictures of him on trail camera. So this buck already has the mass. Like it's a really, really cool, uh, just a clean four point side. And, uh, the, the main beam curves back in, but the G three goes straight out. So, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of cool, um, and that's exactly what Megatron had. And uh, um, looking back on trail cams, I think I've identified the buck that it goes to, who was around quite a bit um, in this summer. Made a couple appearances in uh, like the third week of third or fourth week of November this year, and then kind of disappeared again. But now he's back in the area. Obviously, he's dropped. So. Who knows what this guy will turn into? That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, so based on trail camera pictures that you had, and I can't remember when you pulled your cameras. I know you didn't hunt much in the late season, but yeah. based on any kind of data you have, do you know of any bucks that you've you know watched or targeted in past years that for sure made it through? Do you have any like for sure? Yes, this buck is still around. No, um, not on my main farm. Um, the other farm that I hunt closer to home, I have, I didn't have any trail camera pictures of any bucks that I identified as shooters, um, going into the season. Um, so, and then, you know, when I got my trail camera stolen, I took down all the, all the rest of my trail cameras. Um, you know, I, you don't want to take the risk of losing more. So I, I, I took them all, all down. And unfortunately that means that I can't, you know, I'm not doing the surveying that I actually want to. Right. Well, that's always a bummer, but yeah. that leaves suspense for the summer, right? That's right. And it's going to be, for the most part, it's pretty easy to identify the bucks that stick around. My number one target buck for the year, I think I've mentioned this earlier, got, uh, got shot on a neighboring farm and, yeah. uh, yeah, that's Tupac, it. Right? Uh, to a buck I call Tupac, yeah. right? Because I shot him before, didn't kill him. And, and uh, the second time he got shot, he died, <laughs> which is horrible to say. That's Sorry. crazy. That's crazy how old some of these deer around you get. Like that buck, you shot him like seven years ago or something crazy, and now he it just got killed. Yeah, it wasn't seven. I think it was 2013 when he was a four-year-old. So plus six years or plus three years, which would have made him a, a probably a seven, a seven-year-old buck, gotcha. and he was a stud. So yeah, wow. Do you know how big he was when he got killed? One seventy-two. One seventy-two. Yikes. Yep. yep. Wow, man. So, yeah. Yep. So there's that. Now I did talk with some guys on the farm that uh, that I hunt with, and uh, as far as deer are concerned, they took their trail cameras down too because they got three stolen this year and didn't want any more stolen. So it's kind of hard to tell what uh you know what's in the area going into this upcoming year but just like always uh, come come june or may or june i'll be dropping some mineral and uh get my cameras out over that and the cycle begins all again that's right you found a shed though yeah dude i'm pretty excited about it i that's uh, not holyfield is it it's not holyfield um but because this big snowstorm is coming in well you know last time we talked I mentioned that I had 
a good idea that Holyfield was back in the area. He had still been holding his antlers, but I thought he was probably going to drop him soon. Like, I saw him one time, and he kept shaking his head and doing weird things and shaking his head, shaking his head, and he was just acting weird. And I can't remember if we talked about this last episode or not, but um, I kept thinking it's going to happen soon. I just had this feeling. So after the Iowa trip, I went out and I walked what I thought was one of his core areas um, really hard, like fine-toothed it nothing and then I went out again you know I told you that I found leaner shed from 2012 I went out again um and kind of worked another section over like really really hard like just checking every little nook and cranny um nothing and then um oh what was going on we had oh this past weekend I had to do a bunch of stuff on our camper renovation and so I didn't get to do much shed hunting, but with the snowstorm coming in, I was thinking I got to try to get some more time in. So I went out late Sunday night for kind of a last minute, like two hour walk. And at the last second, instead of going to this main spot I'd been focusing on, I thought I'd check another farm across the road where there'd been a little bit more food. And I thought it was another spot Holyfield could be. And I'd seen some bucks out holding there. And, uh, long story short, walked, this is the second time I walked this farm and, um, you know, I've kept walking all these edges of these fields and then these adjacent bedding areas. And finally, this is, um, there was kind of a finger of timber that came out in between a cut bean field on one side and a cut cornfield on the other side. And there was a grassy strip along the side of that timber. And, you know, it's one of those spots that just screams sheds. And you always think, oh, this is where I should find some sheds. Um, but you know, 95% of the time you don't, but still I was like, got to check it, walk it really good. And, I'm walking down the strip and I just see this big white circle that like immediately caught my eye. And it's like, you know, that feeling when you're like, Oh shed, like you get that, like, you see that thing that triggers the the response in your mind. But so many times this year I've seen like that thing where I'm like, Oh shed. And then I pull up my binoculars and it's, (laughs) you know, it's a stick, um, or something. So I remember at the, during the, our little gathering, the shed gathering that we had, and there was literally five of us all looking at the same thing going, no, that's not a shed. Is it? Yeah. Remember that down yeah. by the, this little grassy bottom and we're mm-hmm. like, no, that's not a shed. Yeah, that's a shed. No, it's not a shed. And finally, uh, someone actually went over to it and grabbed it cause it looked like a shed up until two feet. And then it was just a branchler, a branchler. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, this one, I was worried it was going to be a branchler, but I pulled up those binos and it was a sweet, sweet pedicle. And, I was pumped because it was big. You could just tell the way it was laying. It was laying tines up, but not like normal tines up. It was kind of like tipped over on its side. So the pedicle was sticking up, and then the curve of the main beam was in the grass, and then you could just see tips hanging out of the grass. And um, I ran over there thinking it could be Holyfield, and it wasn't, but it's a big five-point side. It's the biggest antler I've ever found in Michigan. Um. And one of my biggest sheds in general I've ever found, I think it's probably like a top three shed or top four shed of all time for me. Nice. Um, and it's a deer that I got pictures of one time. Um, the buck came into one of my food plots in December, and then um, and then that was it. But he's a really nice deer. He was probably like a, a 130s 10-pointer this past year, which is like an awesome deer in Michigan like a really nice deer in Michigan. So right. he made it next year, you know, he, he's going to be a jumbo buck for Michigan. So right. that's pretty exciting. He'll be 
this I would guess he was a three year old this past year. Um, so at least a four year old in two thousand seventeen and uh you never know, maybe he'll hang out more on my farm or if if, if Holyfield disappears, this would be a, a surely a, a nice what's the word? Um consolation. <laughs> yeah <laughs> if this dude's sure. hanging around. So For sure. So that's pretty sweet, man. I was I was pumped. Well, I'm happy for you, Mark. Thank you. Now we just got to get rid of the snow. And then as soon as right. I get rid of the snow, then I'm going to just hit everything really, really, really hard again. I've never, I've never shed hunted these Michigan areas so hard. And I'm planning on putting a bunch more time in because I really badly want to find Holyfield sheds. So I'm going to keep at it. And, um, I don't know. We'll see. I'm running out of, I'm running out of spots. The best spots I thought they might be, they weren't there, but, um, we're keep at it. Good luck, buddy. Thank you, sir. So, uh, do you want to talk 2017? Let's talk 2017. All right. Well, let's let's take a really quick break for our Sitka story, and then let's start talking 2017 hunting plans and some of our thoughts on how to plan this kind of stuff. So, for our Sitka story today, we are joined by Stefan Caprilletti, a Sitka whitetail ambassador from Pennsylvania. And Stefan has a very cool story about a hunt he shared with his brother. Yeah, so... This is uh, the rifle season of 2013 here in PA. Um, you know, coming off, this is the first rifle season where my grandpa couldn't actually get out. He had had heart surgery. Um, so, you know, we were trying to, you know, relay the stories from opening day on you know, to my grandpa. And uh, at the time, you know, Ben, my brother, he was down at uh, the University of Central Florida for his freshman year of college. And it was going on the second week of rifle season where uh, Ben called us up and said, hey, I'm uh, I'm flying home for the last weekend, so you know we got one day. Let's try to get it done. So the last Saturday rolls around. Um, we're all pumped, ready to go. So we we're out for the whole day, you know, walking around. We we were still hunting that day, um, and we were getting into the last hour of you know the last day of season. And I set Ben up um, in a good spot, and I just said, Hey, I'm going to walk out to the end here of the ridge, um, and I'm just going to still hunt my way back um, to you, you know, here by the end of the day. So we'll see what happens. And I get out to the end of the ridge, start to make my, my U-turn around to head back to Ben. Probably got 45 minutes now and I'm creeping along and up to my left pops up a doe and right behind her is bedded nice nine pointer. Um, I'd seen him once in archery season, just didn't get him in, you know, shooting range. Uh, he pops up and, take one shot and I drop him and, uh, I'm as excited as can be, but, uh, I, you know, Ben's still out there. So I let him know what happened, but I said, Hey, I'm still working towards you. Just keep your eyes posted. And another three, four, five minutes I'm, I'm walking and I hear his rifle go off and he just calls me all excited. He goes, just dropped a nice seven pointer. And, you know, from then on <laughs> it was, a, it was a wild night festivities you know, a little celebration you know getting both deer drug out back to the truck um our family you know met us at the, the one parking lot and uh it's just an experience and memory that i'll never forget um we were able to take both buck to my grandpa's house you know because he wasn't able to get out that year um and just to be able to share that memory and experience with him too he was he was just so tickled and, and excited for both of us you know he, he said to us you know this is better than me shooting a buck just to see you guys both be able to tag a good buck, you know, here on the same day. And that right there is a Sitka story. If you'd like to create a story of your own while wearing Sitka gear, you can head over to SitkaGear.com. 
And now I've got one more quick update for you. Very soon here, we're going to be adding a new segment on the show with our partners at Whitetail Properties, in which we'll be hearing each week, very briefly, from one of their land specialists about different topics related to hunting strategies, habitat improvements, or buying and selling land. So look for that soon. And in the meantime, just want to let you know that if you're not already aware, this coming weekend, March 18th and 19th, is Shed Rally. That's the nation's largest group shed hunt in which hunters from across the entire nation are encouraged to all go out looking for antlers on the same days and then to share their best pictures and videos on social media with the Shed Rally hashtag. So if you're not already planning on doing that, get on out there this weekend, look for some sheds, and you could be eligible to win some great prizes too. With that, we are now set to move on with our conversation about 2017 and our thoughts and lessons learned on planning hunting trips. All right, so last night, Dan, I was, like, my wife and I didn't have any kind of big plans or anything, so we were just kind of sitting on the couch, and I was talking about, oh, we got to plan this, we got to do this, got to do that, and I kind of realized I need to, like, just sit down and, like, map out our year, so I, yeah. I made, like, a list. I started breaking up our list. We, we, we did this for our non-hunting plans because, as you know, we do a bunch of traveling, um, yep. me and her for non-hunting stuff. Um, but on top of that, we got a bunch of different hunting plans too. So I listed out each different hunt I'm going to go on trip, each species. And then I started like writing all these notes like, okay, did I get my license yet? Do I know which location I'm hunting yet? Do I need to apply for anything yet? And I just started breaking all this down because I'm starting to get confused. And it got me thinking about this topic of like our 2017 plans and how both of us go about doing this kind of thing. Um, whether it be for our, you know, our local hunts or our traveling trips and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what I thought we could talk about for the rest of the episode. And we haven't really gone into this yet on Wired to Hunt. We, we talked a little bit about some of my trips planned on your podcast, actually. Yep. Um, but I haven't really shared anything here. So what do you, what do you, where are things standing for you for 2017 right now? So as of right now, and this is me knocking on wood because as everybody knows now, I have a kid due September 28th. And I'm guessing it's going to come probably four or five days early. Let me pull a calendar up real quick. Um, it's going to come four or five days early. And that means that if, uh, okay, five week ahead, that it's going to come somewhere on the week of the 18th, uh, September 18th. All right. So I my plan is to go elk hunting in Colorado the first through the, like, I'll leave the first and then I'll come, I'll be back home on the 10th of, uh, September. So that means that, uh, the baby better not come any earlier than that, or I could be screwed and then my wife would be permanently mad at me for the rest of her life. And I can't have that. Can't have that. That's true. Can't have that. <laughs> so that's, that's my really only trip planned other than you know the november rut trip i usually take uh and that's only an hour away so so what what what's your um now i know it's all up in the air with baby and work and all that kind of stuff but how do you have your whitetail stuff kind of planned right now i mean are you just going to try to go out on some weekends before the november or have you ever already thought through that you know you're going to try to do a long weekend or a specific section of october anything like that have you thought through things that far yet you know, knowing that the baby will be there already, um, I might just say adios to October this year 
just so I can save brownie points and time and dedicate it towards the absolute best time of the year. And that's going to probably be November 6th through the 17th. So I won't even hunt the first three days unless I, you know, I might take a trip down, um, with the kids just to go check trail cameras and, you know, see what's moving and what's up and, you know, up and around. And then I probably won't do anything, uh, until I take my vacation, you know, I may get a, a hunt in closer to home on some different property, but as far as my big vacation and who knows even what's that, what that's going to be like. And you're thinking of trying to stay down there that whole time, that 10 days or whatever. Um, there may be a trip or two back home, but it, it, you know, a lot of it is up in the air right now, as far as when, and trust me, when I, as soon as I heard that the baby was due October or September 28th, I pulled my phone out and I started looking at dates of, you know, when to play it safe, when to go in for the kill, you know, um, I don't know. It's going to be a lot of play it by ear this year. Yeah. So how do you, how do you and your wife kind of work through, or maybe, I don't know how this works for you, but, um, how do you go about planning that kind of stuff? Like, is that, <laughs> is that uh, you guys sit down and say, okay, I want to do an elk hunt this year. I want to do my whitetail rut hunt. And then you guys kind of toss it around or do you, how does that work for you? Well, it, it's, it's difficult because for me, because she's not a hunter, so she doesn't understand specific times of year quite yet. I can do my best. I do my best to try to educate her on that. But, you know, when I say, Hey, I want to go to Colorado for uh, a week. What? A whole week? Why can't you just go for a four day weekend? I'm like, okay, it takes a day to get out there, a day to drive back, which leaves me with two days to did hunt. She, did she really say that? Why can't I hunt on a weekend, a long weekend? Yeah, like why couldn't you do a long weekend in Colorado? Well, not, she didn't really say that, but that's kind of, you know, but then again, I'm in a, I'm in a tight spot where, you know, I have a family. So, you know, it's difficult for, for me to try to explain that, um, Hey, I'm going to go and go to Colorado for a week and I'm going to be spending this much money. And she's like, what do you mean you're going to be spending that much money? That's like, what about the family? Is that why, why doesn't that money go to the family? And that's kind of a hard conversation to have, um, sometimes. So it's just one of those things that I think it, it's just, I, I let her know and she understands and we try to avoid fights. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like year four of having kids, right? Is right, that right. Right. So is there anything you've learned about that process? Like since, you know, since Ava was born and now you've been doing it a few hunting seasons now, is right. there anything that you know to do differently now than you did back then um, yeah. as far as proposing hunts or planning hunts or anything like that? Like how has that changed to make it well, less it, painful? It, you just have to be able to sacrifice in other areas, right? Or, you know, make up for it by maybe doing another trip or going on another family adventure to someplace else, you know, maybe going to a theme park or going to some museums or, you know, I, I am, I was planning on taking my wife to Napa Valley this year for a small trip, but that's not going to happen now that she's pregnant. 
So I'm saving that for another, another year. Um, but you know, balancing it out. So it's not so self-centered when I, when I do take these trips or go on a, you know, if, uh, a five or a two week vacation down South and she's left with the kids and there's all this other stuff that happens. So, um, because my kids are maniacs and being alone with them for 10 days without any, you know, as a single mother, so to speak is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. As everyone knows, my situation is different than yours since I don't have kids. But, um, but I found the same thing, like, especially even, when I used to work my old day job and I had a certain number of vacation days a week, a year, like the first year, um, where I started traveling to hunt, I was just like, all right, I'm going to use all two and a half weeks or whatever it was to go on these deer hunting trips. And then like Kylie was like, okay, well, uh, what about us? Like, how are we going to do a trip? And and I learned very quickly (laughs) that it wasn't going to be okay to have a hundred percent of my free time vacation time going to hunt. I had to balance it out. And so, you know, so I had to kind of start splitting it and it's like, okay, so we're going to do a week here together for something you want to do. And then I will take my week to do my thing. Um, and then a little thing I started doing sometimes too, is even during hunting season, trying to take a week off of hunting or a weekend or something like that and do something special with her. Um, like that seemed to help too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whether you be, you know, I get way more, I get way more, uh, vacation time than my wife does. So I think I get like 25 days total throughout the year, which is five, you know, five weeks of vacation. Um, and you know, a week and a half of that usually goes to the family. And then I got a week for a Western trip and then two weeks for whitetails and then, everything else kind of goes to the, goes to the family. So that's pretty good vacation time there. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's what, that's the corporate world, man. I mean, you, you live in a cubicle. I think the only reason they have to do that is so people don't commit suicide um, in their cubicles (laughs) (laughs) because it's definitely, uh, it's, you know, obviously like, you know, that drives you crazy. So they, they're like, okay, well, we can't afford to pay you a ton, but we will give you vacation time. And, uh, yeah, so that's where I'm lucky. Plus I hit my five years a couple years ago and I got a boost in my vacation time. So that's, uh, so I got more. Yeah. I remember back in the day, I, I I think I started with two weeks a year and then I got bumped to three weeks a year and I was always like, forget a raise. I just want more vacation. Give me another week. That's right. (laughs) I just want to, I just want to have time to do stuff, you know? Right. So if you, I mean, if you were to take out all of my, if my wife used all of her vacation and, you know, uh, did all that, did all those things, then I still come out on top as far as vacation days are concerned. And you know, I don't know what, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going through the same exact thing that, that I have to go through, you know, where the wife saying something along the lines of, well, you know, how would it feel? How would you feel if I took a trip with, you know, by myself or, um, I took a trip. I'm like, well, if you have the money, do it. And she's like, even watch, watching the kids. I'm like, yeah, watch the kids. But again, she has way less, you know, she has way less uh, vacation time than I do, which means that, uh, I don't know, maybe she'll do it. Maybe she won't. I, I, in the past, I had the same thing. I was like, go, go on a trip on your own. Yeah, go hang right. out with your friends. Go do something. <laughs> it's right. fine with me. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it's different. And I think also, you know, in our situation, like 
we have such strong passions for our hobby or our thing. And sometimes our significant others don't have a similar type of thing in their own life. Um, And, you know, this isn't necessarily just like a wife thing. This could be, there could be female hunters out there, but their husbands or boyfriends or something, maybe they don't hunt. And so it's, you know, this just kind of goes like that significant other, whatever it is. Um, You have to, life partner, whatever it might be. You got to kind of figure out ways to balance. Um, And, you know, there's a bunch of other things I want to talk about before we, there were other things I want to talk about before we got to this, but now that we're talking about it, now that we're talking about it, um, a couple of the things that have helped me were, you know, the things we just talked about and then like having these discussions way ahead of time. So planning trips out, you know, at this time of year and not like in August and all of a sudden say, Hey, I really want to go on a trip next month. Um, mm-hmm. and then springing that on them. That's an issue. Um, right. Another idea that kind of has worked for me is I always try to plan like a little care package or something for my wife when I'm gone. So like before I take off, like the day or two or week before, I'll have like a bunch of different things for her while I'm gone. So a couple bottles of wine and a movie and some chocolates and like a couple things to make life easier for her while she's gone. My wife, Kylie, actually a good idea um, for people to have kids, a good idea would be to surprise your wife with like a night of daycare while you're gone so she can go off and do her own thing one night like you'll pay for and handle someone to come and watch the kids one night while you're gone and then you know your wife can go watch a movie or go hang out with friends or do something so it's not all Mm -hmm. kids the whole time Um, right but you know another important thing that i learned the hard way is the importance of communication when you're on a trip yeah um i don't think i ever told you the story of what happened in montana did i um, I don't think so. If you did, I don't remember. All right. So tell me if I already told the story, but I don't think I did. When I was in Montana this past year on my deer hunt, um, you know, I killed my buck and brought it back into town, brought it to the processor. And then I hung out in town for a day or something. And then I realized, you know, what? I just want to go back out and scout and film and watch these deer back where I was hunting originally because I was having so much fun. And I had a few more days until my buddies came uh, to meet me for our elk hunt. So I went back out to my campsite, went up to that public land and just decided to spend a couple days watching. So I told my wife that when we were in service, I'd called her and told her, you know, hey, I'm going to go back to that spot, scout, blah, blah, blah. And we had good enough... <laughs> We had good enough service there that I was able to <laughs> I was able to check in just about every day. Pretty much every right. day we'd either text or I'd give her a phone call or something like that. But day six or seven or something like that, um, the the deer stopped moving. I wasn't seeing them anymore. I, I mucked up the area or something like that. And I was like, you know what? I want to change things up. I want to go fishing. So I think I talked to my wife the night before, like texted her or something. And then the next, well, let me try, let me make sure I get this story right. I think it was like midway through the day. Let's say it's on a Thursday. Um, I texted her kind of back and forth. And then that night I went out, sat, didn't see a lot. And then that night I was like, you know what? Tomorrow morning I'm moving. So in the morning I got up early and it was just like, go, go, go. It was packing up camp, hopping in the truck, driving. And then partway on my drive back to town I was like okay I think I want to go fish in this river so then I drove over to this river and started fly fishing having a good time just on my own and then I got a phone call from a friend in the area who said hey do you want to meet me to go fish this other place so again I'm like busy I haven't been thinking about other people other than myself just because it's been go to this place now go to this place so I meet my friend and we go driving up into this canyon 
and we're going to go fish there for the day. In this canyon, there's no cell phone service. And, you know, now I'm just hanging out with my friend. We're talking. We're fishing. And before I know it, the whole day has gone by. And it's now like 8 o'clock. It's about dark. I hadn't really realized I didn't have cell phone service this whole time. We were just doing stuff, so I hadn't looked at my phone at all. So it's like 8 o'clock western time zone, mountain time zone. We get to the truck. We drive out of this canyon. And now it's like 8.30, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I, I should probably check in with Kylie. So I'm like, hey, Matt, I'm going to give my I'm gonna give my wife a call. So I call her, and she picks up the phone, and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, hey, I just got uh, done fishing. How are you doing? And she's like, well, hell, I can't even remember exactly what she just said. She just said, I'm so mad at you, and she slams the phone down. And I'm like, holy crap, what is going on? And then when she canceled the phone, now all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up with voicemails and text messages and all this stuff that had been happening while I'd been out of service. So what had happened is I checked within her around noon or something the day before. And then, as I mentioned, got really busy the next day, was out of service. Well, she started texting me like, Hey, what's going on? It was about, you know, it was the next day we hadn't talked. She wanted what's going on. Nothing. Text me again a few hours later. Nothing. Calls me a few hours later. Nothing. Now it's like dinner time on the Eastern time zone, and she realized she hasn't heard from me in over 24 hours. She starts getting a little like worried because I'm out there in the middle of nowhere by myself, sitting in a tree, doing all this kind of stuff. She starts talking to her mom, and her mom you know, worries about that kind of stuff. She starts being worried, which makes Kylie more worried. She checks in with my buddies who are going to meet me out there. They haven't heard from me in a while. This makes her more worried. Long story short, all this kind of builds up and... She ends up freaking out, worried that she hasn't heard from me in so long, and calls like the local authorities and asks someone to come check the campsite where I'm supposed to be. They come check. My truck's not there. I'm nowhere to be found. Um, and she's freaking out, crying, calling my friends, calling her mom. And then all of a sudden I call her, you know, 30 hours later or something. Hey, what's up? And that didn't go over real well. So I think my big lesson learned from that whole thing was, uh, to set expectations. I did not have, we had not set a clear expectation of like, if you don't hear from me in 24 hours, it's okay to be worried. Or, or on the other hand, it's likely I'm not going to have service a lot. So don't worry if you don't hear from me for two days or something like that. We didn't have that conversation beforehand. So because I had been checking with her every day and then all of a sudden I didn't, that really freaked her out and it, it led to a whole bunch of a, all sorts of mess and um, an angry wife. So figure out your communication plan, set expectations, and stay in good communication if she's expecting that. That was my big aha from all that. Um, there was a there's a very good chance when I, I guess this was in regards to our Idaho hunt that we went on. There's a very good chance that, uh, I'm not going to have service. So I may not, I may not be able to communicate with you for up to four or five days. Um, luckily there was, and that made her happy. But you know, when we, especially this trip that I'm going on in Colorado, uh, this upcoming year, there's a very good chance I'm not going to have any type of communication. So, um, those expectations, just with anything in life, expectations have to be set up front or, you know, you don't want to be like, Oh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in Denver. Uh, 
this is the last you're going to hear from me for seven days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so yeah, I uh, <laughs> learned that one the hard way. It, uh, yeah. that one was a painful one. Got it. Got, uh, that was my fault, I guess. So I think, I think we're used for me with kids. As soon as I would have shot my deer, drop it off the processor, waited till whatever it was that needed to get done, got done. And then I'm back in my truck and I'm heading to, I'm heading back to Iowa. Now that's my circumstances, right? If I would have tagged out just like in, uh, uh, when I was in Nebraska a couple of years ago, um, the last day was really rainy and windy and wet. Um, and instead of staying one more night and fighting the elements, I decided to get back into, you know, go home a, a day early and just to, you know, make the wife happy, you know, basically balance, you know, choosing, you know, choosing the, the unlikelihood that I was going to tag out versus going home and, you know, making my wife somewhat happy that I, you know, was out there or came home early, made the quote unquote right decision. Or gave up early. However you want to look at it, Dan. Right. Yeah. Gave up early. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, I, um, I've done that before too. Speaking of communication, um, we left one of our, elk, I can't remember if it was the elk hunt with you or the elk hunt before, but we left, you know, like half day earlier, day earlier, something like that. And I thought it'd be yep. cool to surprise my wife. Yeah. Don't do that. If you have a wife, <laughs> if you have a wife who is armed and ready to defend herself, because <laughs> I I did not tell her I was going to get home. And I pulled into the house at like midnight or something. Oh, and boy. the dog started barking and I'm fiddling with the door. And she grabbed the gun and came walking out. <laughs> and <laughs> I walked in and I was like, hey, it's just me. But uh, I gave her a little <laughs> bit of a scare. And she told me, don't ever do that again. <laughs> right, <laughs> you probably right. got killed. Right. That's nuts. So, yeah. But uh, so you're doing this elk hunt. And your yep. white to hunts. Um, for me this year, I've got kind of a crazy year planned because, you know, we're we're going to be going out west like I alluded to a second ago. We're going to be doing two western trips this year. Um, you know, we just we're very fortunate and blessed to have really flexible work schedules, and we don't have kids yet, so we're kind of taking advantage of that. And this spring in a few weeks, we're going to be heading out west for a little over a month, probably five weeks. Um, and part of the time out there, I'm going to, I'm going to fit in a couple hunts. Um, I think I'm going to do a turkey hunt out there and I'm going, uh, yeah, I guess that's what, that is what would be out there. And then, um, I'm going to do a spot and stalk black bear hunt. Oh boy. Um, so I'm really excited both about both of those, some different stuff out there out West. And then I'm going to try to do a little bit of scouting for a Montana deer hunt again. I'm going to do that again in September. And then, um, so yeah, so that's going to be like April and early May. Then I'm going to come back for part of May and June. And then sometime in July, we're going to head back out and spend July and August out there. And then, like I said, going to do the September whitetail hunt in Montana. And then tentatively, assuming nothing goes wrong with the plans that I'm kind of working out right now, going to go to Alaska for a DIY caribou hunt. That's bananas. Which is bananas, yeah. So so those will be my Western trips. And then when I get back from that, I'm going to still try to do my Ohio deer hunts, my Michigan home deer hunts. And then uh, i got to figure out if I'm going to be able to do Iowa like I do every other year. This is my year to draw an Iowa tag. Um, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off 
given how much I'm going to be gone in September. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't know if I can be gone for two weeks in November too. So that again, for right. me is I got to figure out that balance with her, but, uh, definitely Michigan and Ohio, maybe Iowa. And, um, another crazy idea I had in this probably I shouldn't do this, but I started thinking, okay, if I'm not going to do like a rut hunt in Iowa, maybe I can do a late season trip somewhere, you know, cause I would have been home for a couple months, maybe in yeah. December she'll be ready to get rid of me and I can go maybe do an Iowa muzzleloader hunt or just bow hunt in late season. Or I've also thought about like somewhere like South Dakota, which is just some super cool spots out there in that state to do some hunts and uh, all public land stuff. I want to do some more public land like we talked about. Yeah. Um, so I've been looking at some stuff like that, but with all I that, say save your point for Iowa. You think so? And and collect, skip out for two more years, get those points, and then you can start hunting in the the best zone in Iowa. Yeah, I don't know, man. I just don't know if it's that much different than where I hunt right now. I know that that's you know where the famous people like Dan Johnson hunt, but <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. Well, I don't know if more. There's just the entire south southern part of the state is there's just more to cho- choose from. There's more timber. There's more ag. I mean, you get up to where we went shed hunting into your neck of the woods. Yeah, there there's pockets and spots, but you know where we went shed hunting, it's good. It's a really good deer hunting. However, everything around that is ag, which means you're not going to find the, you know, more. I guess there's just more down in the southern units yeah i don't know i gotta i I gotta think about it because just think about it i'm thinking about it but it's not like i mean if i go and i shoot shoot a big buck on the property next to yours since i go in there and lease it out from under you or something like that yeah you're not gonna be happy with me so (laughs) i'd slash your tires yeah you probably would (laughs) but i don't know i just like the idea of being able to hunt there more often and it's hard to wait four years um and what okay so I think where I hunt in Iowa, there's a great chance on any given year that I could kill a four-year-old, um, you know, yep. 150 class um, yep. or bigger. And every time I've hunted there, I've seen at least 160s um, and numerous four or five plus year old bucks. So, okay, if that's what my like assumption would be for this general region I hunt now, do I really think I could do that much better down by you? I mean, I don't know. Do you think that there's a substantially better chance for me to see or kill a 160 or 170. I mean, sure, there's probably some more, but I don't I just don't know if it's quantifiably that much different. Right, so. I guess it depends on what your what your goal is. I mean, if you're looking for big racks and big antlers, then yes, but if you're looking to kill a mature buck, 4-year-old or older, then, you know, anywhere in the state of Iowa or any other states for that matter is going to give you that opportunity. You know what I think th- what I think the thing is, is that when I look at the difference between where I hunt now and Michigan, so like that difference between Michigan hunting and where I go to Iowa is huge. Mm-hmm. So I'm already like, whoa, this is so awesome. And then the incremental difference, though, between where I hunt in Iowa and where you hunt in Iowa, that's like a small difference. Right. That it's like either way is going to be way better than what we used to now. So I'm just pretty happy with either one, I guess. Yeah, um, makes sense. But But yeah, we'll see. So... That that all is like where we're where I'm thinking about going this year. Where you're thinking about going this year? Your Iowa hunts and your family stuff. Your elk hunt. What I do want to talk about that now we've rambled for 45 minutes. Um, I want to talk about 
kind of how we think through this stuff. Like what are some of the important things? So if people out there want to plan some trips of their own, what are the things they need to think about? And, you know, both of us have now either planned and been on some of these different out-of-state trips. I've done some more, um, but you, you know, you went through a planning process for a mule deer hunt that we never Mm -hmm. actually went on, but you did a bunch of planning for it. And then we did go on that elk hunt together. And now you're planning for a new elk hunt. And I've planned four or five elk hunts now and numerous out-of-state deer hunts. And now I'm planning an out-of-state bear hunt, out-of-state elk or caribou hunt. Um, So I want to talk about how we've done that and some of the things we've learned. Um, I think there's a few like just right off the bat, easy things you got to kind of figure out for yourself. You know, you got to figure out where you want to go, like general region and what species you want to hunt. And I think a lot of that kind of comes down to like just your personal preference. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like, okay, I love the Rocky mountains. I want to hunt something there. And then I look at like, okay, what's the bright species there. Um, but for me, it was like, I want to hunt in a certain region. I want to be in the mountains and I want to be in the West. Um, so I think some people maybe go about that way. And then some other yeah. people say, I've always been fascinated with mule deer, or I've always been fascinated by a moose. I really want to hunt a moose. What's the best place to kill a moose? Right. Um, I think that's like two different ways to look at it, but it probably comes down to like your goals, right? Like, do you want a right. certain experience or do you want to kill a big animal of X species? Um, right. So maybe that's the first thing you got to think about is what's your goal going to be? And then you choose which of those two different things, you know? Right, right. For me being new to hunting the West, you know, I've only gone on one elk hunt and one mule deer slash antelope hunt. I think the mo I, I did that based off of species first and foremost. Um, I wanted to kill a, an elk. So, you know, that's what we, that's what we did. However, I, I want to talk about the, the hunt that I'm planning in the background of some of these other hunts that I'll be going on because my Colorado hunt, I'll be completely honest with you. I got a friend out there who is letting me tag along on some spots that he has been, had successful, you know, in the past. So I'm, I'm not really doing too much except planning the gear portion of it. Um, I am looking on maps and giving advice when and if needed, but for this particular hunt, I'm you know, it's going to be DIY. It's going to be all public ground. Um, but that I have some inside information and that's kind of how I'm, I'm going, I got invited and I'm like, sure. Why not? That is a great way to get your start out there. I mean, that's right. My first Western hunt was with a couple of buddies who had been out there before. And you know, that's a, it, cause it is a little bit intimidating if you've never done something like that to try right. to, for me, I think the hardest part, at least before you've done it before is like, just where do I go? You know, because there's so many places you could go. And I always have the worry of if I just pick a place on a map and then I get there, and there's going to be like 70 cars and I'm going to be dealing with all those other people. Like right. My biggest fear when it comes to any kind of hunt, whether it be a whitetail hunt or a elk or big game of some other sort, it's like I just don't want to be with a bunch of other people and dealing with that. Um, right. So if you've got some friends who have a little bit of information that's a great way to go about it or even you know if you don't have friends that you can already hunt with i think one of the things that have helped both of us the most has been like just trying to get somebody on the ground that can offer you some type of insight i mean you know, i remember when we were planning our mule deer hunt you were calling biologists out there and talking to some biologists yep. and they had some great intel um yep. i think that's probably something that a lot of people don't take advantage of um right. or connecting with someone on a forum that you happen to 
bounce around or that you see on Twitter a lot and that you know that they live in such and such state. And if you just say, hey, I'm, I'm just trying to learn some things about this area. Do you happen to know anybody who might be willing to talk to me? And who knows, if you start mining your personal network like that, you might eventually end up with a friend who is willing to share that they had been to this region and, and know that this drainage is great. This drainage has a lot of other hunters. I mean, I think that putting in your footwork in that way can pay off big right. time. Right. So one thing I learned about the West is it's just like the Midwest when it comes to um, hunting property. I'm not going to share my hunting property information or the area, the specific area where I hunt uh, with anybody who asks, right? So I've learned that if you're going to communicate, for example, um, I, I used to go on some forums and I said, hey, um, not looking to kill a giant uh, mule deer, but I want to kill, um, a buck looking for good numbers. What zone would you recommend? Someone points you in the direction of a zone maybe, or, but not specific portions of that zone because that's given away too much information. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a bow hunter and typically, you know, out West, some of these rifle hunts, you're talking 10 years to draw some of these tags because, um, and, and that's that's another thing to consider is is the unit that you want to hunt uh, over the counter is it going to take you one year of points to draw two year of points is it a is a is it a lottery where you put your name in every year and if you draw you draw if you don't you don't there's there's a lot of other things to consider so definitely you have to put in the 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 keyboard time um, behind that uh, hunt as well yeah. Uh, to your point about how people might not want to share specific spots, um, very right. true, and I would never like press someone for that. But at the same time, you know, you might come into or you might run into a person who moved, or they just know they're not yep. going to be hunting in that region again, and they don't care. They don't like, hey, yeah, I hunted at this in this specific trailhead, or this is where I went out of, and I'm not going to be there next year for the next two years. Yep. But you know, so it doesn't hurt to just try to have conversations. Don't be pushy about it. But um, yeah. you make a great point there. Because I got into communication with a guy who moved from Colorado back home either to – I think maybe it was Ohio or Michigan or Pennsylvania or somewhere like, like that for a job. And he shared uh, he's, he, he shared a ton of information with me about some spots in Colorado to look for um, elk because of his past experience and, and I met him through Facebook or yeah, I think it was Facebook. So he shared some, he's just like, check out this lake in the Northwest part of it. Check out this, uh, this river and this, you know, trailhead here. And, uh, didn't really say walk a hundred yards up, take a left, follow the tree line, go up, you know, follow it up another thousand feet it was just like check out this area check out this area check out this area and uh you're gonna fight people but it's there for you yeah no i mean that's and the same thing even can go for whitetail stuff you know there's gonna be guys that moved or people that hunted a piece of public land but aren't gonna be going back to that same state um you know if you're trying to plan an out-of-state whitetail hunt it does not hurt to try to make some connections to try to chat with some people and at least get some kind of direction because even though there's a lot of resources available online right now, like official resources, articles, and the state DNR website and stuff like that, um, you can only go so far with that stuff. 
you really do need to try to make some type of connection. Um, I will say one resource that I have found super helpful, um, and I'm kind of plugging a competitor, I guess, in some way, um, a little bit, but they're Western focused. So the website called GoHunt.com. Um, yep. I think you, I know you've been on there too. I got a subscription to them. Yeah, ditto. If you're if you're going for a Western hunt, that is a very handy tool. Their insider tool. Um, it breaks down each state. You can go to the state and get some general information about, like like you said, like how do you apply? What's the lottery? What are the odds like? What um, when do you need to apply? Where? What species are there? All that kind of stuff. It breaks down all that stuff by state. Success and then, rates, everything. Yeah, and then when you break it down by species, like you say, okay, I want to hunt elk in Montana or elk in Wyoming or whatever. You pick that species, you pick the area, and then you can drill down by unit, and they give you information even down to the unit level. Like, okay, this unit is 68% public land, um, so lots of public access, and with this many points, this is your likelihood of drawing. And this is what like the weather's been like re- like over the last ten years and all sorts of stuff. Like it's it's very very helpful, um, and it you know it costs them. There's a yearly subscription fee, but um, I have found it's probably worth it if you're going to plan a few things like this. Um, and then also like they have the information about like you know, it's tough for these western hunts trying to figure out when you need to apply and how many times you got to apply and how do I get points versus how do I get into the lottery versus all that kind of stuff. So breaking all that stuff down so you know the tag situation, so you know, you know, the regulations that or you know, you really should just go to the state DNR's website and read through their whole regulation booklet too because that right. stuff is is a nightmare if you if you don't. Um, but there are some online resources like that that are, that are worth checking out to get just your basics figured out. Um, and I actually was just watching a video from Randy Newberg, um, our friend Randy, and he was talking about this exact topic, how he goes and he utilizes some stuff like that. And then he goes and utilizes some of these different online services where you can get, um, you know, plat maps and see property ownership and see yep. public land versus private land and stuff. And in some of these places where you, um, some of these places where like if there's a unit that doesn't have a lot of public land access, lots of times that will just turn people away. So they'll see that a unit is like, you know, there's only 10% public land. So they'll say, oh, well, forget that. That's too difficult. But if you go and find those spots that don't have a lot of public land, but if you have the resources that show you where those little honey holes of public are, you can actually get into some relatively low-pressure hunting situations because of that. Um, yep. So that was kind of a good trick that you know maybe we, we just ruined for people. But um, it uh, that's something to look for. And then once you have that kind of stuff, you can – you can go in there on the ground when you hunt and or look on whatever mapping tools you use online and figure out what the terrain looks like, how can you access these spots, and get in there. But um, And you mentioned it. Before you go into the next thing, you mentioned it just a, a hair is when I was in, when I was, you know, doing research on this mule deer hunt, I called up the uh, guy who does the wildlife biologist in that area. And it is their job to share information like that. So, unless, you know, I doubt they're going to tell you, hey, I saw a 170 in this draw, right? But what they will do is they'll provide you with statistics, you know, like, hey, um, we had a, this success rate. I saw, you know, we had a, the, the fawn birth rate was good. We did a, a study and we showed that there was this, pop, you know, this percent of population or whatever, Um and I don't think those guys 
if I had to guess, I don't think that those guys get used like hunters should. Yeah. To your point, I mean, you got some pretty good intel from those guys when you called yeah. the past couple of years. Right. Right. And they gave me they, they gave me pr- pretty specific details of where I can find mule deer. Um, and an, a, another thing that I did was this is this was just because I was curious of if it would work. I started calling local businesses and I straight up said, hey, my name's Dan. I'm from Iowa and I'm going to come out there and I'm going to do a, a deer hunt or an elk hunt. And I want some insight. I'm looking for, you know, a little bit more information than what I could get online. And I called a gas station and uh, this lady uh, asked, and there must have been a guy she knew standing right there uh, buying something, a Mountain Dew or something, and was just like, hey, uh, this guy's from Iowa. He wants to come elk hunting. And I talked to this guy on the gas station phone for about 15, <laughs> 20 minutes about um, he wasn't big into mule deer hunting, but he was into elk hunting. And he told me, he's like, yeah, you go up this road and all throughout there, you're going to find, uh, you know, good hunting, but you want to stay away from this area cause it's easy to get to. And there's going to be a lot of guys there. I typically go here. And so it was random, but if you, if you put in the time and cover all those things, people will, you know, you're, you're bound to hit something or somebody. That's such a Dan Johnson thing to do. Call a gas oh. station. <laughs> oh heck yeah, man! But I Why love not? it. That's Why not? Awesome. If you're gonna if you're gonna spend two thousand dollars on a hunt, you know whether that's the travel out there, you want to, you know, the everybody wants to go out and kill, let's say, a big bull or a big mule deer. So why not try to get as much information on those places as possible, whether it's big or a. Uh, bull or an uh you know mule deer it doesn't have to be a big one because i'm a first timer i'll shoot just about anything even a doe going out there i just want for me i just want numbers so um i just and you know just seeing an animal that i'm not used to on the hoof is a win-win for me so you know use use every everything as a resource i called a hotel and the guy's like you know what i'm uh i'm not a hunter but my brother-in-law is, let me uh, take down your information. And this guy called me and we talked for, um, a while and he was a rifle hunter and he would basically just go up into certain areas, shoot, shoot the first cow for meat. But he's like, I can show you where there's numbers at. I, I don't concentrate on hunting bulls. I just shoot the first elk that walks out every year. So yeah. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think we underestimate how helpful sometimes people are willing to be. It all goes back to knocking on doors, you know, for, for whitetails, you know, don't be a pussy, (laughs) just go do it. Everybody, everybody is, you know, complains about, oh, I don't know if I'm that kind of guy. I don't know if I'm that kind of guy. All right. Well, good. More for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are willing to put themselves out there. Like you said, whether it be trying to find a whitetail spot or trying to find an elk spot or a bear spot or anything like that. If you go out there and talk to people, try, get out there, you know. Too many people, I think, make excuses not to do this stuff. You know, they, they always say, oh, I'd love to go out of state on a deer hunt or out of state on a moose hunt or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, not this year, next year or some other year because they don't know how to find a spot to hunt or they're worried it's going to cost too much money or it's going to, you know, they don't know how to hunt moose or something. But I think one of the big things I've learned is that all of this stuff can be done more affordably than most people assume. It can be done more easily than most people assume. And it's just, it's not 
as scary as most people assume. You know, right. I think right. any if, if you want to go hunt a moose or a whitetail in a big buck state or a bear or an elk, the resources out there are there. Like there is enough stuff now where you can either talk to people or go online and learn stuff. You can learn enough about the animal to be dangerous out there. There's enough public land, or if you're willing to knock on doors, there are places you can find to hunt in private on private property. And you can you can do it cheap if you plan it out. If you camp, if you bring your own food, if you don't buy extravagant things, like you can do this stuff for way less money than a normal family vacation. Or if you just decide not to buy a new big screen TV this year and stop buying Starbucks for a few months, you can go do these dream trips. It's just a matter of making that choice and prioritizing it, you know, sacrifice a little bit to make this thing happen. Amen. So, so what have we talked about? We talked about, you got to set your goals. You got to figure out the regulations and tag situations. There's lots of online resources, uh, finding a place to hunt. Of course, we talked about some ways to do that. You got to do some digital scouting. So if you don't know specifically where you're going to hunt yet, you need to look at some maps, look at terrain. Um, it's important to understand whatever kind of species is you're hunting you got to understand, like, just like deer hunting, you know, we, we know that you can look at a map and say, okay, this is a likely spot that deer might be feeding. This is a likely spot that deer might be bedded. And this is a likely way they're traveling between those two things. Um, if you learn enough about the animal, like we have with whitetails, you can see that on a map. The same thing can go for elk or mule deer or whatever else. You just need to go and learn that stuff. So if you're hunting elk, read a bunch of stuff about how elk behave what types of terrain do they feed in? What types of terrain do they bed in? And then, you know, there's, there's, there's great stuff online now. Like if you're trying to get an elk hunting, Randy Newberg has some great videos about this stuff. Um, Corey Jacobson's elk university, I think it's called or elk One Hundred and One or something like that. Um, has a bunch of videos and resources about understanding this type of stuff. How do you digitally scout for elk? I'm sure there's something out there for mule deer and these different things. Um, where you can learn how to look at maps and learn this stuff for, for these different species. So go out there and do that stuff. Take your time, figure that out, digitally scout, and then have a game plan. You know, like with you and me, Dan, whether it be for our mule deer hunt that we were planning and then the elk hunt that we actually went on, going into both of those, we said, okay, we know what general region we want to go hunt. Um, when we get there, you know, here's we've got a plan A and a plan B, and if there's too many people here, we'll try to shift over there. But you have a game plan, and then you you got to go into it flexible. Yeah. Um, same thing for a whitetail trip. When I showed up, you know, in Iowa on a piece of property that I knocked on doors and got permission a few years ago, I went in there beforehand. I said, okay, I think I want to hunt in these two spots during the early season and during the rut. These are my couple core places. And then you get there on the ground, and you you then get a temperature on it see okay is it what i thought it was going to be from the digital scouting and then you start hunting um and then you kind of learn as you go and that's an adventure on its own but um i don't think we need to necessarily talk about how to do the actual hunting that's something you got to figure out learn yourself but i think having at least a a basic game plan to get started is is a good um a good way to get that off and rolling so right gear gear yeah. Um, I did want to talk about gear for these types of trips because, again, when it comes to costs for any right. kind of DIY hunting trip, trying to keep it as affordable as possible is, is great. And I think right. the best way to do that is either get a bunch of guys crammed into a really cheap hotel room or camp. Yeah. Um, 
So we haven't really talked about camping gear at all, I don't think. Have we talked about some of the stuff that I use on those trips or what we used on our elk hunting trip or anything like that? Um, I don't we may have mentioned it but not into detail. I will say that for me because I didn't have any type of quote unquote western DIY backcountry style hunting equipment. Um my first year and the initial cost was greater than this upcoming year when I now I have all that stuff. And now, you know, I you know, I I may need to just buy some freeze dried meals. And other than that, I'm good to go. Yeah, that's true. If you're going to start doing something like that, the the upfront costs are going to be a little bit more. But if you think about, okay, I'm going to continue to go on trips like this over the next 10 years or something, um, that cost goes down significantly when you don't need to buy all those things to get you started. Yep. Um, and there really are actually a lot of places you can get this kind of camping gear at significant discounts now. I that's mean, um, whether it be hunting gear, like camofire.com is a website I've used in the past to get great deals on even like Sika gear, hunting clothing or camping gear or other hunting stuff. Um, there's a website. Hunting, I think it's huntinggeardeals.com. Yep. Yep. That's another one. You're right. Um, hunt of the day is another one I just recently found out about. Um, and then also just regular retailers like Cabela's or REI or Amazon, eBay, steep and cheap, steep and cheap. Yep. That's a good one. I forgot about, um, another one called the climb, but the climb, yes. spelled C L Y M B not C L I. Um, that's another Back one country. that has discounts Backcountry.com. Um, there's a website called devor D V O R.com that if you become a member, it doesn't cost anything, but if you just like kind of like Groupon used to be like if you were a member or whatever you had access to all their special deals that's another one that has some of this kind of stuff um, SierraTradingPost.com is a online retailer that specializes in like selling like overstocked and out of season type gear like that but lots of camping stuff you can get for big time discounts there um, so if you shop around and look at some of these places you can get the stuff you need you know you don't need that year's newest fanciest gear to go out and have a good hunt you know (laughs) yep unless you get a hole in your tent well (laughs) and then in that case then you buy the very you buy the very most expensive (laughs) (laughs) she fleeced you dude she absolutely fleeced you oh man they my my wife still talks about that (sighs) having to pay a lot of money in jackson hole wyoming which is obviously the one of the most expensive towns in the whole United States to live in, uh, going and buying a tent that I probably could have bought for $300 less online somewhere else. Uh, but you know, when you need it, you need it. And it is a nice tent. It is a very nice tent. So at least, at least you're set for the future. That's right. Um, but let's, let's talk camping gear a little bit. Um, because if, you know, for people, whether it be a whitetail hunter or elk hunter or whatever, if you're at a camp, um, I guess I can walk through the stuff that's worked for me because um, I've done a lot of this, not only just for the hunting, but then also a lot of camping, backpacking, just, you know, my wife and I. Um, so for the backpacking stuff, when we backpacked in for our, for our elk hunts and everything like that, I think some of the most important things are your your essentials of a sleeping pad, mm-hmm. a good sleeping bag that's rated to the temperature that you need. Oh, jeez. My Alexa unit is talking to me. Um, you ever seen one of those things, Dan? Alexa? Is, oh, shit. is that where 
is that where you say, Alexa, um, buy dog food and it buys dog food or it sends you, uh, it plays porno. <laughs> yes, that's, that's this. Okay. <laughs> I got one of those for Christmas and she, she talks to me every once in a while randomly. Gotcha. Um, what the heck was I talking about? Oh, sleeping bag. Make sure you get one that compresses like a backpacking sleeping bag that's small, packs down small, um, and that's rated to cold enough temperatures. You don't want to take like the sleeping bag that rolls up. It's like two feet by three feet or something. Yeah. Um, I think it's worth you know, investing a little bit of money in a, in a decent sleeping bag that's going to get into your backpack okay. Um, and then a uh, inflatable sleeping pad. I've used ones from Thermarest and REI. Both have been really good. Um, you can get those for not too much money. Um, and then, of course, tent. Make sure you've got yeah. a, a rainproof tent, a good three-season tent. That, uh, again, I, all these things, if you're going to backpack with it, weight is a consideration. So you try to get as, as light as you can get, but without blowing your budget. And lots right. of times, the more lightweight stuff, the more ultralight stuff, the more expensive it is. So you got to find that balance point for you. Um, but you can find some pretty good deals out there for all these things. So what right. tent you ended up getting an MSR tent, right? Uh, yes. MSR. I think it's actually a three man. I thought it was a two man, but I think I bought the three man version, uh, for like 700 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> had, I had to have it. You did have to have it. Um, a tent that's worked really well for me and for a lot of people I know is, uh, the REI half dome tent. It's a two-person tent, and it's one of the most popular long-running backpacking tents out there, and um, it's it's really pretty darn good for the price. I think it was I can't remember exactly what it was, less than two hundred bucks, I'm pretty sure, and um, we've put that thing through the ringer. Um, so that's a really good kind of beginner backpacking tent. Um, gotta have a water filter if you're gonna be backpacking in there, and I've always used um, either a Katadyn. K-A-T-A-D-Y-N, which is like one of those pump filters. Um, yep. I think you had an MSR as well for your yep, water filter. Yep. An MSR pump water filter that uh, can connect directly into your um, camelback or your, your water bladder that goes into your backpack. Yeah, those are nice. Um, if you don't want the pump, which is kind of like most people have a pump, um, where you just put this little tube in the water and another tube comes out of the filter and goes into your water bottle or whatever and you pump it out. Another option, if you want to go with a lighter option, and it's actually less expensive, is uh, a squeeze filter. And this is what I've used the past probably three years now. And I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. It's a little bit slower to use, but it is way it takes up a lot less space and weight. Um, and uh, it's a Sawyer is the brand. And basically, it's just a bag. And you put the bag in the stream or the river, and you kind of just move it around until it fills up with water. And then you just screw on the little bottle top. And then you squeeze the water out of that bag through the bottle top, and then it just comes out filtered on the other side. Yeah. And that was that's pretty handy, like forty bucks or something like that. Um, so from a water standpoint, that was an option that worked well for me. And then what else? Uh, cook set and stove. Mm-hmm. I use these actually not only just for my backpacking hunts, but also on my regular deer hunting camp camping trips. Um, I use an MSR Pocket Rocket stove. So it's just I got the same. Yes, yeah, so you've got the same one. It's just this little metal thing that screws onto a little fuel canister. And it's basically just a burner, a little fuel burner. And you light it, and you can then put your little pot on it and boil water or make whatever kind of food you want. So I use the MSR Pocket Rocket. 
a little canister, one of these MSR fuel canisters. And then this cook set that I absolutely love is from a brand called GSI. It's the GSI Halulite Soloist. Um, so that's Halulite, that's H-A-L-U-L-I-T-E, and that's the Soloist. So it's like a little pot set for solo for one person. So within yep. this little pot, I can't, do, do you have this one, Dan, or do you have something different? I have a different version of the same one. Okay. Because it comes in, like, it has different options. But I think I had a, either the step, it might have been the step above yours. Op, it offered some more extra things. Yeah, I can't remember which it was. But but the one I have, it, it's it got this little pot. It's probably a four-inch diameter bottom of the pot, about five inches tall. And inside of it is a little fork, a little spork, kind of expandable spork and a little pot gripper, and then you can actually put your stove inside of that, and then there's a lid, and yep. you know, you've got basically everything you need right there. So your pot, so you can make water, and then you put that in your freeze-dried meal, or you can heat up water for coffee, or heat up whatever food you want. You've got your little eating utensil, you've got your stove in there, and it's all in one little tiny kind of compartment. Um, so I really like that. And then there's a, maybe this is the one you have, there's also a version called the Dualist, D-U-A-L-I-S-T, and that's like the two-person version of that. So it's got two kind of mug slash bowls. It's got the big pot, everything else you need. Um, we've got one of those that we use when my wife and I backpack together. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the setup for the backpack hunts, the stove, the water, sleeping system. You need a headlamp, um, your basic hunting gear. Um and that's basically it. I mean, there's a handful of other items maybe you need, survival kits, some first aid type stuff, knife, et cetera. But right. it's it's not crazy. It's There's not right. a crazy amount of stuff. And then when, I, when I'm camping out of my truck or just car camping with a tent, um, you know, the only things I would change is I would then add, you know, like a camp chair. And I've got a Coleman stove that I use to, to make things when I'm car camping like that. Um, yep. So you can grill burgers or steaks or whatever. And then on my, you know, like my Montana hunt, what I did is I brought my big cooler with a bunch of frozen meals. So I pre-made dinners back home, froze them, put them in the cooler, and then I ate that throughout my time while I was deer hunting there. So I didn't have to buy stuff all the time. So I just heated stuff up on my little stove or I, I think one night I had like lasagna soup. One night I had chili. One night I had some kind of stew, um, I can't remember whatever else, but I mean, right there, I was able to cut my cut, my cut my costs exponentially just because I kind right. of planned that out, and um, it's kind of fun. I slept in my back, right. slept in the back of my truck most of the nights. Um, if you've got a topper on your truck, that works really good. Um, I really like that. And then I brought the tent for one night when I killed my buck. I, you know, put the buck in the truck and then slept out in the tent. Um, I don't know. Whatever. What other things haven't we talked about when it comes to gear? Man, I can't tell you how important it is to have a good pair of boots. Um, and I, I don't mean, you know, just go to Cabela's and buy a pair of boots. I mean, do some research because, and and part of this was my own fault because I didn't go take the the proper steps to, because I, I I know I knew I was going on this elk hunt. I bought a pair of boots. I broke them in. I wore them through. Mm, like turkey hunting and stuff like that. Um, but I didn't take the proper steps to take care of them like I should have. And what I mean by that is make sure they were waterproofed properly. Um, and, and my feet got wet 
and they were wet the entire well, my boots were wet almost the entire trip <laughs> yeah so so I, I didn't have any blisters because they were well broken in but my feet were wet and from a mental standpoint it's kind of it kind of screwed with me a little bit yeah for sure that's glad you mentioned that because that, if you're doing a western hunt that is almost the most important thing right I mean, if your feet go, you go. That's right. my opinion. Yeah. To your point, it's uh, it's an easy way to lose your mental edge if you don't have that covered. Um, I have worn Danner boots out there elk hunting, and I've worn Oslo hiking boots, and I've been really happy with both of them. Um, I would just say something waterproof, something that's broken in, and something that has a lot of support, um, yeah. especially if you're backpacking in. Um, or if you're hoping to pack out a deer or an elk or some kind of animal, you need to have that support around your ankles and stuff. Otherwise, you know, you can easily hurt yourself. Yeah. So that's clutch. Um, speaking of that kind of stuff, packs, got to make sure you've got a good pack. If you're going to do even, even for a deer hunt, I had to have a good pack when I'm packing in, you know, your stand, your tree stand, your sticks, all that kind of stuff. I mean, having a good hunting backpack is really important. And I think, um, one thing I've learned is that there really is something to be said about like finding the right fit for your body. Right. So like I've had some packs with certain brands that I really liked, but they just didn't fit my body type. Right. So I've had to try different things. Um, so for example, for, for like all my white to hunts, I use a sick, toolbox backpack. I think it's the tool. No, it might be the tool bucket. And that's an awesome pack for my white tail hunts. Um, but when I use the Sitka pack for my elk hunt, um, not that one, but a different one, they're like baby 45, it just didn't fit my torso type right. So when I when I was out there with like a lighter load, it was great. But when I had a really, really heavy load, it just didn't work right with, I've got a really short torso, long legs. So I had to try some different packs to find something that would handle the really heavy weights. While I've had other people that use that same pack and loved it, um, it really comes down to, if you're doing a backpacking type hunt, I think it's a really good idea to go into a store, try these different packs on, try to find a way to load them down with a lot of weight and see where it pulls on you, see how your body fits into it. Um, because that's another thing that I think you'll be really miserable if you don't have a good fit for your body. I mean, uh, have you found anything like that when you went out there at one time, Dan? Well, I'll be honest. I got lucky in that aspect. I think I had a Tenzing 4,000, um, that I bought for whitetail hunting, but it has a meat compartment and it's 4,000 cubic uh, inches. So it, it did exactly what I needed to do. If I, you know, shot a, shot a, um, elk, I probably would have been able to put a, a quarter into it, but it, it fit me well. I, I didn't have any issues with having to continually adjust it or anything. I made sure that that pack was going to fit, of course, Uh, when I was doing my exercises in the summertime, you know, I loaded it down with a lot of weight. I went on hikes with it, looked for problem spots, and then I, uh, adjusted where I needed to, but it was good enough where I didn't need to go buy a a new pack. Yeah. That's nice. I think one of those, one of the key things with that type of situation is that a lot of packs feel pretty good when you've got 30 pounds in it, or if you're backpacking into camp with 45 pounds or something, they feel pretty good. But when you're packing out an elk or something like that and you've got a 100-pound load, that's when you really tell if it's the right fit or not. Um, like right. That was when I figured it out. I was like, okay, this just isn't working for me with 95 pounds on here. Um, so I tried – one year I tried an external frame backpack. So there's two different types. You know, There's the internal frame where it just looks like one of these 
a cloth exterior backpack and then the supports are inside of it like the the metal or plastic supports to give that pack some heft to it to hold weight those are inside and then there's the external frame backpacks those are the ones that you, you see like big metal piping outside of it kind of so i've tried an internal frame that didn't fit my body right so i tried an external frame the next year and that probably would have handled the heavier weight better but it was bulky and cumbersome when i was just trying to like hunt during the day um that was the pack i used i think when i hunted with you um it just wasn't great for the day-to-day hunts and so this past year i used an exo mountain gear pack and that i found fit my body right and was a good mix between the two it had more support so that when i packed we packed out a cow elk and you know i probably had a 65 or 70 pound load maybe maybe more and um, it handled that extreme weight much better but then because it was still an internal frame pack it handled the day-to-day hunts when i didn't have a lot of weight in there more comfortably and it was just wasn't wasn't as cumbersome so that was like the right fit for me um i found that sweet spot between the two so i think i think that's an important decision if you're gonna do one of these hunts when you're gonna be packing out heavy weights packing in camp do your due diligence try some different things um, figure out what fits you. Amen. So packs, we've talked camping gear. Um, you know, we've talked about different ways to figure all this stuff out. I'm trying to think what other things you need to think about when going about any of these types of hunts. I think, you know, an important thing. And again, this, this applies to any type of hunt trip is figuring out what you're going to do with the meat and what you're going to do with the animal, the cape or the antlers, taxidermy, all that kind of stuff. Every different state has different regulations. There's different challenges with it. Um, what I've always tried to do is I've always tried to figure out where a processor is locally beforehand so that, you know, when you're dealing with it in the moment, you do, you're not stressed about it because you know how it is. If you, if you kill something, it always takes longer than you think to get it taken care of and to get it back out to the truck and to take it wherever you go. And then if you have hot weather or something, then you're stressing about that. Um, so that's that's important. Figure out a processor if you're going to get processed or if you're going to do it yourself. Make sure you got the right equipment. Figure all that out. Um, also, Make a list and check it twice. Yeah. Another important thing, we, I think we've mentioned this in the past, but if you're going to be driving home with that animal or parts of that animal, make sure you know the laws about transporting carcasses, transporting antlers and meat. There's a lot of states now that don't allow you to transport meat across state lines. Not meat, sorry, but certain parts of a deer or elk because of disease issues. So, for All example, the meat has to be out of the head. Yeah, bringing it. Yeah, yeah. You got to debone the meat, and you can't bring back like a full deer carcass, for example, from a CWD positive state back into Michigan or back into a different state. Um, you have to. The meat's got to be deboned and taken care of, and then you can only bring the cleaned skull cap so the antlers and the bone but everything's got to be off of it the brain tissue all that kind of stuff has got to be gone um there's a lot of people right now that i think are shooting a deer in iowa or illinois or something throwing in the back of the truck and then driving six hours back into michigan or back to their home state not knowing that what they're doing is illegal and if you get pulled over you're you're in some trouble um So make sure you know those regulations when you're doing anything like this. And the same types of things probably apply to elk and mule deer and different things on those lines. So what else, Dan, have we not talked about when it comes to doing these types of trips? Or what else with your trip? Is there any other planning you've done for your Colorado trip that uh, 
we haven't talked haven't, about yet? I mean, I haven't got into it yet, but the only thing that I have le- that I'm going to do is, like I said, I'm as far as the location itself, that's pretty much taken care of through my friend. Um, the only thing that I need to do is double check all my gear and go through it, make sure it's not heavily worn, make sure it works, you know, set my tent up, check my straps on my backpack. Um, you know, make sure you gave me a, a checklist several years ago or when we, before we went out on this, that Idaho trip that we went on, um, look through that again, make sure I, I, you know, my knife, my knife is sharp and working good. Make sure I have the proper amount of, you know, rope, make sure I have my batteries and my headlamp work, you know, make sure I have, uh, my, my boots are up to par and, and won't get, uh, you know, wet again and, and just make sure that everything is in working order. And if I need to purchase something new or, whatever for the trip I need to, I I do that. Yeah. My wife and I actually just did that for our just general camping gear for this April trip we're going on. We just, we've got everything in these big totes. We took all the totes out, took everything out of the totes and just laid it out. Like here's all the camping stuff. Here's all the kitchen and food stuff. Here's all the backpacking stuff. Here's all the fishing and just went through every piece and just said, okay, do we need to replace the batteries in this? Or do we need to fix the waterproofing on that? I mean, doing that stuff ahead of time is always going to pay off. You don't want to realize you have a leaky tent when you're sleeping in the rain, you know? Right. That's a fact. <laughs> that is a f- And then you have to go and bring your sleeping bag in and snuggle up next to another grown man. Do you remember that very first night we ever camped together, we were spooning in Idaho? Like, you know, I just didn't think oh, that was how it was going to go. Did Did you really try to p- get into my sleeping bag with me? <laughs> I thought that was established. Oh, okay. I just will never forget just my eyes opening in the middle of the night and all of a sudden rain is like coming into my tent. I'm like, what is going on? And then like this big bearded man sticks his head and says, hey, Mark, I got to come in here with you. (laughs) Yeah. You were so miserable too. Yep. It was not fun. I mean, I I can remember taking – I was a little bit hot. and I knew it was raining, but I was a little bit warm, so I unzipped my sleeping bag a little bit and put my – one of my arms out and kind of when I rolled over on my side, my fingertips touched the bottom of the tent and it was just like running water. (laughs) Well, long story short, my buddy, uh, that tent got put away still damp on one of his trips. And then he took it out when he got home and dried it off. But in that meantime, that all the waterproofing got ruined out of off that tent. So it was just basically absorbed. It was like a sponge and absorbed everything and it let it all leak through. So, but now I got a good kick-ass tent and that should last me for several more hunts. Yeah. It's funny stuff like that, like in the moment, right? You were miserable. Right. But now like two years later, we can look back and say, oh man, that was awesome. That was funny. (laughs) That's that's one of the other things about any kind of trip like this is like when you go out there, it's going to be challenging. Stuff's not going to go as planned. Um, But it's always a lot of fun to look back on. And There's actually a a guy I met at um, at an event here relatively recently that listens to the Wired Hunt podcast. And he talked about how hearing some of our stories and some of the different things we've been talking about when it comes to doing a Western trip it kind of inspired him to try to do something like that himself. And now he's planning his first elk hunt too. He's going to go out to Colorado and he was talking how that like helped motivate him to get through the end of college because he just knew when he got done with that, he was going to go on his first 
big Western hunting trip. And I think having a trip like this, planning something like that, whether it be any of these things we've talked about, planning something, getting out and trying something new is a great way to just kind of get you through the year, to have something to look forward to, to push you to, to learn new things, makes you a better hunter. You know, whether you're hunting elk or mule deer or whitetails, when you try something new, it's going to make you a better general hunter. And you might not kill anything. Things might go wrong, but gosh, it's going to be pretty awesome if you go into it with the right attitude and um, just lifelong memories. I'm just, I'm all about trying these different new things. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to kill bear. I might not kill caribou. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm All the things we just talked about, I'm in the process of trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, but just like the act of trying, just being out there looking for bears and just the act of being in territory where caribou might be, um, is gonna be such a cool experience. And I know I'm going to grow a ton from it. And, um, I'm pretty pumped for that. And it's like, you know, as a hunter, I think a lot of our, our, a lot of our life kind of revolves around the next season or the next trip. Um, it's a way to kind of get you through the doldrums of the daily cubicle life or, whatever it might be. Um, so I'm, man, I'm all about these trips, planning them out, giving new things a try. And it's going to give us, if nothing else, it's going to give us some good stories to tell Dan, you know? Amen. Amen. I'm pretty pumped. I'm, I'm, I'm getting excited. I'm getting excited. I'm getting hungry too. So I think we should probably wrap this one up. Any, any final thoughts, Dan? Make the wife happy. Make the wife happy. Get your brownie points. Yep. balance things and then don't be afraid to, to try this stuff i think that's that is a fact that's a fact awesome man well with that said i think we should wrap this one up before we go though we do need to thank our current partners who have helped make this podcast possible so big thanks to sitka gear yeti coolers ozonics matthews archery maven optics whitetail institute of north america carbon express and huntera maps and finally Thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Hopefully some of you will be heading out on some new hunting trips this year too. And of course, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt.